All right, last week, our good friend, Pastor Rich, uh, shared with us. I hope you're encouraged by the word that he brought. Um, some of you guys know, I actually had the opportunity to go to Naha, and I was the guest speaker down at Calvary Naha. Uh, the funny thing is that Rich gave, and I gave the same message. It uh, wasn't planned until I saw his notes, and I'm like, well, I'm going to give his message. No, just, <laughs> it just happened to me. But we, we skipped a week in First Peter, so I thought we'd go and just do a quick review, overview, um, as we you know, set this up. So Peter, of course, is uh, the apostle who's writing to this group of Christians in the first century. Many of them are Jewish believers, they're Jewish Christians, but not all of them. It also includes Gentile Christians. We, we know that he's not writing to a specific church like Paul would write you know, to the Corinthians or to the Galatians. But he's writing to a, a group that have been scattered in what is today, you know, modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. They're just living in various regions. And he addresses them, interestingly, as pilgrims, as exiles, as aliens there in verse 1. And we noted that that, that was true. Uh, demographically, they're scattered. And even sociologically, they're exiled. Uh, but there's also a, a doctrinal truth to that. There's a spiritual truth to that as well that applies not only to them, but to you and me. As Christ followers, we too are uh, temporary foreign residents here on planet Earth, right? We, we are spiritual gaijin. Um, this is not our permanent home. The Bible says that our true citizenship is in heaven, Do you know that the beginning of the year, there was a news article, and it, uh, and it said that having a, a Japanese passport is considered the most powerful passport in the world. Because as of January 2023, if you are a, a, a Japanese passport holder, you can visit 193 nations out of the 227 that are designated for that visa-free. That's 85% of the world as a Japanese passport holder. This according to the International Air Transport Association. As Christians, we have been issued a spiritual passport, if you will. And it's even more powerful. Peter describes this for us, if you will, in a sense, verses 3 through 5. It gives us access to heaven. It gives us access to all of, uh, of heaven's resources. It identifies you as citizens of the kingdom of God. And, and Peter is writing because he wants the reader to understand the tremendous value of this citizenship that we have in Jesus Christ in heaven, of what it means in the life now and what it will mean in the life to come. God had purposed and planned this even before you and I were born. Before the foundation of the world, God was thinking about us and planning uh, to rescue us and adopt us and, and make us his own. And, and Peter reminded how, us how it's through Christ that lived for us and died for us so that you and I could be called the child of God. And beyond that, how God then placed his Holy Spirit inside of us. 
And God's spirit now inside of us providing access to God's power and God's peace and God's presence and God's wisdom. I mean, everything that we could possibly need. And to include a hope, a living hope, an assurance that Christ is coming back for us. In the moment that we pass from this life to the next, we're going to be with Jesus. And Peter describes all of this for us. And why is it important for us to grasp this? Why is it important for us to, to let this sink down deep? Because on this side of heaven, life will sucker punch you. And when it does, we will be tempted to think God doesn't care. God isn't watching. God isn't real. Because of those experiences. And so Peter wants us to understand that, yes, we are greatly blessed. Yes, we have all of these tremendous blessings and gifts that God has given us. But even as exiles, we are not exempted from pain and problems. How many of us already know that? (laughs) Rough roads, tough times, hard hits. They come. And we do not want to lose sight of God's promises and God's purposes. Because it can be easy to do in the midst of pain, in the midst of our problems, in the midst of our storms. And and that's exactly what Peter's readers are going through. They're experiencing these things. And so he's writing in many ways to encourage them. Don't be tempted to quit. Don't allow your mind to play mind games on you. That's why he would say, gird up the loins of your mind. Think biblically. Think soberly. Think critically. And some were tempted to go back to the old life of sin. Because their experience of trouble and their experience of the hard hits, it didn't seem to match their expectation of salvation. And so God the Spirit, through his servant Peter, writes these words to encourage them and encourage us to uh, exhort them, to exhort us. Don't let go. Don't give up. Don't freak out. Don't let these momentary experiences and these passing emotions, don't let them overrun our faith. And so he called us there in verse 13. Think biblically about these things. And we talked a lot about that, right? I mean, most, if not all of our our battles of faith really take place in our our minds. Your your brain and mind, that's the battlefield. So the Bible says to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It's It's our thought life that dictates our life. And if you're with us, you remember, that's why I said it's so important for us to get verses 1 through you know, 12 down, the foundation of God's goodness and his grace and his love and all that he's done for us. We don't want to get that wrong. It's Tozer, A.W. Tozer, that says, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because if we don't have good doctrine, uh, or <laughs> our life's going to look squirrely. So we worship God with all of our 
heart and all of our soul and all of our strength and all of our, our mind. So as review, man, we're to anchor our faith deep in the bedrock of the truth of God's word. And along with that, to guard our thinking against, I'll call it reckless abandon. Sometimes we can move to extremes, fatalism and nihilism, especially when storms come. And so Peter adds some practical application. Think soberly. Concrete your hope uh, in the grace of God. What else are we to do? Well, he goes on in verse 14. This is where we pick up. As obedient children, do not conform yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. As he continues here, he has another label in, in in addition to pilgrims and exiles and aliens, now he, he calls us as, as obedient children. What is this mystery illustration that Peter is referring to here? This mythological creature called the obedient child, right? <laughs> For some of us, Peter might as well writ, wrote the, the rainbow-colored flying unicorn. I've heard legendary tales of obedient children, their existence. Just kidding. Our, our kids have their moments, and, and I'm sure we appreciate when our kids match that descriptor as obedient children. It's, I mean, even to read it, it's, uh, it's so soothing to the soul, isn't it, as parents? So Peter starts with this, this illustrative identity and attached to this identity is a very important adjective. The identity is children. We're God's kids. The important adjective is obedient. Obedient. Now, we, we've talked about this before, but again, I think it's important for us to do a quick review and refresh ourselves in the understanding of, of what the Bible means when we read that term obedient and obedience. So I want to suggest to you that we, we can make, if you're like me, we can make three mistakes when it comes to the obedience of God. The first mistake that you, you and I can make is that we view it as, as something like legalism, as a set of, uh, of rules and regulations as though God turned the New Testament into the Mosaic Law 2.0. But what we need to realize is that God wants the best for us. The motive behind the thing that he directs us to do. And God wants the best for you because he loves you. And so he'll direct us then to actions and attitudes and behaviors that are designed well, for our benefit. I mean, ultimately, because our entire life, if you name the name of Jesus Christ this morning, right, we, we have been saved. We have been transformed in and by the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. And, and our response to that, as we, we talked before, right? We, the reason we even love God is because he first loved us. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. 
we're overwhelmed by the goodness of God in our life. Our response, what should our response be? Well, it should be then to honor and to heed, obey, all because of what God has done for us. And so when we read that term, we need to understand that attached to that is, is the understanding that we do that in response because of all that God has done for us. And that we should obey the Lord from a place of willingness and a place of love. That our words should be that we want to, not because we have to. Remember, Jesus said, if you love me, then you'll obey me and you'll keep my commands. John later on would say, this is how we know the love of God. We, we love the Lord, we obey him, and his, his commands aren't burdensome. So love, love is our motive. Love is the motive of our obedience, not, not legalism. And we have to be careful. I think sometimes, again, that, that's a mistake we can make. The second mistake I think we can make is we, we go the opposite direction. You know, the pendulum swings too far the other side, and, we, and we're too lax. We think too little of the obedience to God and his word. And then we approach the scripture as though it's just suggestions, that they, these are options for us. And we talked to me before, right, that our, our faith isn't like a salad bar. We don't go and approach like, oh, I like this and I like that. I'm going to leave those things. It's not salad bar Christianity. It's not Burger King Christianity. Have it your way. We should not pick and choose which commands we will obey. We like this. We don't like that. So we have to be careful that we don't go to the other side where just we think little of God and his commands or relax on it. It's a contradiction to call Jesus Lord and then to live in disobedience. Then to say, well, I know what your word says here. I know what you want to do, Lord, but I'm going to do this other thing. Please understand, there's grace upon grace, right? Where sin abounds, grace abounds the more. And, and Peter, of all people, should know this. He knows this well. There are several incidents in his life. I mean, one time, Jesus was telling the disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. The Son of Man has to go. This is going down, you guys. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be beaten. The Son of Man's going to be killed. And, and this is right after Jesus had a pop quiz about who, who do you think I am? Remember, Simon Peter's like, ooh, 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 I got it, I got it. You're the Son of God. You're the Messiah, remember? Jesus high-fived him. Gold star for you today, Peter. Imagine Peter's like, yeah, I'm the man. And Jesus then begins to say this is going to happen. And, and then what happens? Peter then pulls Jesus aside, and, it, and the Bible says he rebuked Jesus. He says, this is not going to happen to you, Lord. That same section, do you know what the Lord's reply to Peter was? Get behind me, vato. No, he says, get behind me, Satan, right? Call him the devil. It's in Matthew chapter 16. He says, you're not mindful of the things of God, but you're mindful of the things of men. Church family, we have to be careful. We, 
obedience isn't just, you know, legalism, or we got to do this. It's the New Testament, all that God wants us to do. You know, it's like the Mosaic Law 2.0. No. It is God loves us, and because he loves us, he wants what's best for you. And so he'll lay out what we should be doing. We understand, okay, because God loves me and I love the Lord, I, I want to obey the Lord. And there's grace, but we don't want to use it as, a, as an excuse for our sin. We don't want to think little and be lax with that. God's ways aren't our ways. His timing is in our timing. And the path that he chooses for you, it may not be the path that you would choose. But at the same time, we can and we should trust and obey him. The third mistake I suggest that we can make is that we think God operates on partial credit. That we can think, well, I've been really good lately. Out of the last four weeks, I came to church three. I got some credit to spend. And, and so, you know, I, I got some margin. So if I'm not good, I'll be okay. And, and we, we, we think that the Lord operates on this plus and minus, and I'm going to build up my good credit so that I have some and I can just, you know, spend it on things when I'm not so good. But, you know, overall, the scripture teaches that even partial obedience is still full disobedience. We can't think, well, I, I bought a lot of cookies last week, Pastor Rick. So I got some margin on messing up. No, that's wrong thinking. King Saul in the Old Testament had that same wrong thinking. He, he thought that because he gave more at the offering, and even though God had called him and he had this position, that he thought it would cover the deficit of his disobedience. And so God sends the prophet Samuel to go and, and be a good buddy to confront him, rebuke him and say, hey, bro, that, that's not good what you did. And there's this back and forth, right? King Saul's like, well, I, look, I, I, I gave a lot. You know how many cookies I bought? And the prophet Samuel's response to him was, listen, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. 1 Samuel 15, 22. And so when we, we read this as obedient children and we lock in on that word obedience, we have to understand where it comes from. It's the motive is love. We, we don't have the wrong thinking about what it means to be obedient to the Lord. And let me just add this too. The implication, though, is that it's expected. <laughs> right? God, God, as our Heavenly Father, expects us as His kids that we would listen and we would heed. I'm a parent. I have four kids. That's my expectation. Right? For their good, for their benefit. Sometimes they don't get it. Sometimes they don't understand. Sometimes they rebel. But God expects us to listen and obey. And the fact that Peter adds the, the marker, the identity, the label as kids or children, it's important. It, it reminds us that we have a relationship with God. He is our heavenly father. 
And so the essence then of our obedience is rooted in relationship. God loves you. God wants the best for you. And, and, and we will, if I can say it this way, we, we will serve ourselves best when we say, okay, Lord, your, your will be done, not mine. We'll take it your way, not my way. So what does that look like then? What does obedience look like as children? Well, Peter defines it, and he defines it first in the negative. It's a broad kind of categorical behavior. Actually, starts in the negative, and then he puts it in the positive. So it's, it's the do nots and the do's. What does he tell us first? Essentially, do not. Not conforming ourselves to our former lusts, as in our ignorance. So Peter begins with a prohibition. What we're not to do. And what he tells us what we're not to do is that we're not to conform ourselves. Your Bible might translate that word as fashion. The Bible dictionary of the original Greek word that's there, it means to conform oneself or your mind or your character to the pattern of another being squished like clay, being molded and, and shaped. You're being conformed. Paul the Apostle uses the, the same word, a very similar command, and he writes in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed. And he would say to the pattern of this world, but rather let's be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So that we'll be able to test and approve what the will of God is. His good and pleasing and perfect will. But here Peter says, don't be conformed. Don't be um, pressured into. Don't allow your life to look like, and he, and he says here for us, our former lusts. It's... It's our old life. It's our BC days before Christ. It's our old way of living, defined by self, defined by sin. It's those ungodly pursuits. It's those ungodly behaviors that Ephesians says we once walked in. Right? That, that should be past tense. We, we once walked that way. We once walked according to the pattern of the world, which the world continues to embrace and engage and endorse, and it's just getting worse. And so, just to keep it as simple as I can, in essence, Peter is saying, listen, you, you and I, we're God's kids now. And, and as God's kids, he expects us to have a, a, a conduct as his kids. And it begins with then not acting like we used to act when we weren't God's kids. When we lived for ourselves, when we lived in sin. We're not to behave like that and think like that and, and talk like that. Because the Bible says when you and I come to Christ, we're a new creation. We can keep it real. Even as new creations, we still struggle, right? Then we still struggle with the flesh and the world and sin. I'm the only one. 
All right, three of us. All right, I'll just speak to you guys. <laughs> all right, Bethany and Michael and Ken and I. All right. We still struggle against the old nature, the old Rick, against temptations, the world, against, against evil forces. You know, Ephesians talks about how we, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's all working against us, right? The Christian has three enemies, our self, our old self, the world system, and the devil. But God's given us his spirit And the spirit then is placed inside of us. And we talked about this before, so this is a review. And part of what God's spirit does inside of us, because God saved us out of the world, and now we're out of the world, but the world's still in us. And so the spirit is then sanctifying us, changing us from the inside out. But part of that is he also, the spirit empowers us, enables us and empowers us. And so if there's, If there's the true root of God's spirit in our life, then the Bible says there's going to be true fruit. That our our life will bear fruit as evidence that the spirit of God is inside of us. And that evidence then is our attitude and our actions and our behavior and our words and our work ethic and the jokes that we tell and the things that we find ourselves being entertained by, right? It's... It's all of those things. It's our lifestyle. Our desires begin to change. Not only are we not living like we used to, we don't want to live like we used to. And how does that all happen? Because the Spirit of God is inside of us. And so all of these imperatives, you know, parenthetically include as the spirit enables and empowers us to do this. And so what does God say? You're my kids now. And now that you're my kids, I have an expectation about how you're to live because I love you and I want what's best for you. So don't act like you used to act. Don't live like you used to live. See, as God's kids, we, we don't want to live in our sin and for ourselves. There should be a marked difference in your life. Can I say this in love? If there's not, then I would seriously question where you are with the Lord. The Bible tells us to work out our salvation. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things of the world, because if anybody loves the world, here's what John says, the love of the Father is not in them. But again, we, there's, there's, there's a really important thing here we have to understand. Coming to faith in Jesus Christ isn't just an outward conformity. Right? We're not just adopting, okay, there's moral behavior, so let's just morally behave. As though we're going to, you know, now there's a new code of conduct and it's just outward function. I would submit to you, that's religion. Rules and rituals and regulations. But Peter's saying, we've come into a relationship 
And so it looks completely different. It's from the inside out, not the outside in. And that's where it's truly transformative. And so our life then looks different because the Spirit of God is at work in us and through us. And so how does that then line up with us? Well, then we repent from that. We turn from that. We don't engage in that. We don't pursue those things anymore. We shouldn't be seeking then to live like the world or please the world and please our flesh. Chasing after and adopting the values of the world around us. What's the world around us? The values of the world around us. Self-seeking, emotion is king, truth is relative. You have your truth, I have my truth. That's what the world says. You know, and yet sadly, that's exactly what, you know, many Christians are doing. And I would, I would say this in love, that it's because they don't have verses 1 through 12 solid. As I mentioned earlier, right? If, if their theology and their doctrine is soft and it's mushy, if our doctrine and theology is soft and it's mushy, then our thinking and our life becomes soft and mushy. You know what soft and mushy is? It's malleable. It's easily conformed. And it's moldable to the world, and it's moldable then to our former less. And let's not make any mistake, that's exactly what the world and the culture around us wants to do. They want to conform us to their ways. And I feel like more and more the world around us is becoming aggressive. It's militant. It's crafty and insidious in its schemes. There's tremendous pressure on us as Christians. There's tremendous pressure on the church to comply and to capitulate to the world's ways, to the culture around us. But as God's kids, we have a very different directive We have a very different direction. Our vector doesn't look anything like the world. And so then when we're obedient to God, we're obedient to his word, it's going to look a lot different. It's going to be anti-cultural. It's going to be, uh, it's not going to be popular. And I think this is part of what Peter wants us to understand. Then when we choose to do that and we obey the Lord, then conflict's going to come and trial's going to come because it's not going to be easy. But God is always gracious, right? Because my kids, and I imagine your kids, they don't always obey. And even when they blow it and when we blow it, What's the expectation? Own it. We make a mistake. We confess our sins. We repent. And God, again, sometimes I think we have the wrong idea. We think, we think we're going to talk about a healthy fear of the Lord. Sometimes we think God is like, like the, God, the Godfather, like a mafia Godfather. Right? Like you mess up. 
I'm going to break your legs. Right? <laughs> no, no, no. He's not, he's not like the Godfather. But, he, but he's our Father God. Perfect representation of what a father is. And I think sometimes it's hard because my dad wasn't the greatest dad, and maybe some of your dads wasn't the, great, the greatest dad. But as Father God, when we, we stumble, we mess up. He doesn't kick us when we're down. In his grace, he picks us up and he dusts us off and he says, all right, let's go again. Come on. Though we fall seven times. And so we can confess and we can repent. And God's mercies are new every morning. But there's one thing that uh, we can't do. And that is we can't claim ignorance. See, we once lived in our ignorance, Peter says. But now we've been enlightened. We, we, we have the truth. And along with that, then the Spirit convicts us. We can't say, well, I didn't know. And really what this whole verse reminds us of and speaks to, as Pastor Rich, I think, shared last week, we, we don't want to turn back to the old life. As God's kids, he expects us to be obedient to the things that he's called us to do, and that's the idea that we're then moving away from our old life. Right? We're not sinless, but we should sin less. And so Peter says, don't go backwards. Don't go back to the old life. And again, I think Peter knows. Oh, sorry, Ikwe, this is not on your notes. It just came to me. Uh, okay, John 21. There's that great scene where uh, Jesus is on the beach. It's one of my favorite portions. Peter, prior to that, has seen the resurrected Christ. This is after he died, crucif or crucified died, resurrected, was seen. Peter at some point says, I'm going back fishing. And, and the guy's are like, yeah, we're going to go with you. And so they all go back to the old hood, to the Sea of Galilee, and they go fishing. And in John 21, that whole scene, right, it, they catch nothing, which that's not a good fishing trip, right, guys? That's not a good fishing trip. You remember, and... Good part of the nature of professional fishermen. That's their backyard. They know all the secret spots. And so they go back. Peter goes back, and then there early in the morning, Jesus is standing on the beach. Remember that account? And he calls out to him, Hey, did you guys catch anything? And that great scene where John's like, Hey, I think that's the Lord. Peter jumps in the water, comes back. I bring that because it, there, there's a spiritual picture there of, of Peter going back to his old life. Because the last time, well, not the last time, a, a marked occasion where Jesus and Peter are together in that same lake in Peter's boat, earlier, way at the beginning, Luke 5, Jesus tells Peter, hey, Peter, uh, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. I'm changing your career path. You can keep your passion, but I'm going to use it for God's kingdom. And Peter, in one sense, goes backwards. 
and he goes back to the old life. And, and it's a great picture because in his old life, he caught nothing. And we're told that he fished all night, right? It's darkness. It's unproductive. There's nothing there. And when Jesus is standing on the beach and sees him and calls to them, this beautiful picture of God's grace. It says, now in the morning, right? And again, God's mercies are new every day. Anybody remember what Peter had waiting on the, the shore for them? Yeah, they had a little fire pit going, and there's fish. There's already fish. And again, I, I love that scene. I think it, the Lord's reminding Peter, listen, all that you wanted, I already had. And we don't have to go backwards. All that the Lord, all that we need, all that we need for our life in the, in the Lord, God, God's provided. So don't go backwards. Verse 15 and 16 says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Who called you? But he who called you. God called you. God called you to himself. God called you into this new life. Remember I told you before, there was a guy in our church, Jesus, and I'd love when he called me because on my phone it'd just say, Jesus is calling. I'm like, you know, walk around and show people, look who's calling me. God called you. And that word called, it means to invite. It means to give a name to. And it is the idea that God who called you by name calls you to himself to be then his daughter, to be his son. And he calls you to himself and he gives you then his nature. We bear his name and we bear his nature as his kids. And what is his nature? Peter says, it's holy. And as he is holy, we are to be holy. God's called you to himself, and so we bear his name, and we bear his nature, and that's holiness. That word holy in the original Greek, it's the word hagios, and it means, it means to be separated. It's designated. It's, it's special. Some of you have dishes in your house that they don't come out. It only comes out during Thanksgiving or special occasions, right? Most other times, it's paper plates and, uh, you know, and the, the ones from the 100 yen store. Or in your closet, you have certain clothes. There are certain uniforms. And you're not wearing those things every day. They, they, they come out during ball season or special occasions. Right? They're hagios. They're, they're designated. They're separated for something special. God himself is hagios. God himself is holy. He's separated from what? From sin. From the world from corruption. God is love and God is light and God is grace and God is holy. Incorruptible, pure, good, righteous. And God wants us to be like him. As he is, so we are. That we would live respective of his holiness, but also reflective of his holiness. 
See, the Bible says in ourselves we're not holy, right? We're not righteous. There's no one righteous, not one. And even if we think that we're pretty good, we compare ourselves to other people like, well, I'm, pretty, I'm better than that guy. Maybe. <laughs> you compare yourself to me, you're, you're all going to be great. My wife would say amen if she was here. But you're not, you don't measure against me. Right? Our measurement is against the Lord. Against the Lord. We, in the, against the Lord, the Bible says, we all fall short of the glory of God, the goodness of God, the standard of God. We, we all miss the mark. And so in ourselves, we're not holy. In ourselves, we're not righteous. And so that's the beauty of the gospel, the wonder of the gospel. When we came to faith in Jesus Christ, God then sees you, if you will, and, he, and, and he, because he loves you, we're not righteous, we're not holy. He says, I, that's not going to do. And so there's all these wonderful terms that the Bible uses, and one of them is imputed. You've been credited with the perfect righteous standing of Jesus Christ, the perfect holiness of God the Son. And Jesus, if you will, says, I'll, take, I'll trade places with you. I'll take your standing of sin and junkiness and, and darkness that he who knew no sin became sin, took our sin, so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. And so it's the greatest trade ever of switching places. And so Jesus did this for us, and he did that positionally. So when God sees you, Victor and Chris and, and Julia, right? God sees you and says, oh, you're holy. Positionally, we're in Christ. Calls us to himself. But as I mentioned earlier, we're still in this body of flesh. And so Victor and Chris and Julia and all of us, right? We, we still sin. We have this old nature that we're battling against. So positionally, we're made holy. Practically, God says, live that out now. To walk out this, live out holiness. And what does that mean then? We pursue a life of holiness. We pursue a life of purity. You know, it's been said, no one drifts to holiness. Have you heard that before? And so Peter says, make it your aim. Make it your aim. To act otherwise is conduct unbecoming a child of God. And when he says, but he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. I think regardless of translation that you have there, every single translation says all. Not most, not some. Not 90%. And so the idea is that God says, listen, holiness is not something we put on occasionally or that we do when it's convenient. Today's Sunday, let's be holy. That's good to set a day aside and time aside is special. But God says, uh, you no, know, he wants us to be holy in all of our conduct. That means in all that we do, in all arenas of our life, in every facet of our life. Everywhere we go, everything we do, that God would want us to live right before his sight. Because, of course, he sees it all. 
So it means when you're at church. It also means when you're at work. It means when you're at school. It means then when you're at the game. It means when you're online. It means when you're on vacation. It means when you're on deployment. You're sitting in your car at a red light and it turns green and the people don't go. It means in the ethic of our work, in the example of our dress, in the expression of our speech, the entertainment we choose, the evidence of our everyday living. You know, some have rightly said there's no divide in God's eyes between the sacred and the secular. Like our, our holiness shouldn't be compartmentalized. It should permeate every aspect of what we do and who we are because we're God's kids. Be holy in all your conduct because it's written, be holy for I'm holy. So there's, there's, there's something about the idea of holiness too I want to add. There's a, there's a sanctified confidence when we're pursuing a life of holiness. There, there, there's, a, there's a type of power we, we can experience of the Lord when we're walking in a path of purity. The Bible says the wicked flee when no one's pursuing, but the righteous are as bold as lions, Proverbs 28.1. And, and I know that in my own life, because when I, if I've entertained sin, and if I entertain sin in my life, my prayer life, my relationships, my confidence in the Lord, my, my, my authority. See, sin, unconfessed, hidden sin, it, it hinders it all. It, it gunks it all up. In fact, Peter's going to talk about even later in chapter 3, if in our relationships, our marital relationships, if we're not right with the Lord, he even says our prayers will be hindered. But when I'm, when I'm living above reproach in the Lord, when my accounts are short, God, I messed up and confessed my sins. I, I've confessed my sins and asked for forgiveness with other people. When I'm on a path of purity and I'm in pursuit of holiness, there's this sanctified confidence. And it's not pride, but it's this assurance that, oh, I, I'm in the Lord and I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm walking with the Lord. And what comes with that is a freedom they're, it's so refreshing. I don't shrink back in uncertainty. I don't let my eyes go down when I'm trying to talk to my kids or my wife or other people about the things of the Lord. I can stand at this pulpit with a clear conscience, knowing that I, I'm not hiding stuff, you know, when I, outside of this uh, room. I can stand here and, be, and, and know like, all right, Lord, I, I'm good. To live without guilt or hypocrisy. And then verse 17 says, If you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Another way to read that is, Since we call on the Father. Again, if, you, if you're a believer this morning, You call on God as your father. 
you have that relationship. You say that you belong to the Lord. Peter says, understand this, God doesn't play favorites. That's the idea. He's impartial. God loves you the same. He, he loves you like he loves Billy Graham and Franklin Graham. And, and, God, and God judges rightly too. And there's going to be a day when all of our motives are going to be exposed and judged. Jesus tells this uh, very interesting thing. I think it's in the book of Luke, Gospel of Luke. Where he says, there's going to be a day where all the things that we said in secret are going to be exposed, right? All, all, the, all the hidden motives of the heart, they're all going to come out. I'm like, oh no, Lord, I don't <laughs> In fact, he even goes on to say, and, and you know what? Don't, don't fear those that can just kill the body. Be elevated, but fear, fear the one that can kill the soul. And so even in that, there's this idea of, of a sanctified confidence. All right, I don't have to fear anything then. I want to have a reverence to the Lord. And this judgment isn't a judgment of our salvation as believers. Jesus took that judgment for us. But it is a judgment of, of obedience to the Lord. Because what we do on this side of eternity matters. That's the idea. Let me close with this. Peter reminds us, Conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Here's what Peter's saying. Time is short. We have limited time. None of us are promised tomorrow. And if that's true, then we don't have time to be playing games. We don't have time to be messing around. We don't have time to be, uh, you know, aimlessly wandering and trying to figure things out. We don't have time to be fearing the wrong things. Proverbs says that the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the holy is understanding. And so even in this, we don't want to get it wrong. To know the love of God and the grace of the Lord and the goodness of God, his kindness. But also to cultivate a, a healthy fear of God, a reverence for the Lord. Jim Baker, you guys know who Jim Baker is? Kind of old school televangelist, got in a lot of trouble, end up in prison, fraud and conspiracy. So he's interviewed in 2016. And in this interview with him, he says, I loved God, but I didn't really fear God. And he attributes that, that that's what led him then to be a minister even and yet do all of these horrible things. They didn't really fear God. I think it's good for us to cultivate a, a reverence for the things of God and for God himself. You know, sometimes our, su our suffering is self-induced, right? Because we're playing games with the Lord and, and, and God loves you. And so the Bible says, because God loves you, he'll chasten you. In fact, Peter is going to develop this later. He's going to say, hey, don't be crying if you're beaten for your faults. <laughs> when you're playing the fool and, and God brings the spanking stick, that's on you. you know, Paul 
directs the Corinthian church in a really similar way. He says, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let's cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh. And that's perfect holiness in the fear of God, 2 Corinthians 7, 1. God loves you. God has called you to himself. You and I then bear his name, and God wants us to bear his nature. And he's holy. And because he loves you, he wants what's best for you. And so part of that then is he calls us then to be obedient to the things that he directs us to do. And that includes then, don't live like we used to live. Don't love the world. Don't go backwards. But move forward in the things that God has for us. Be holy in our conduct. Pursuing purity. And conducting ourselves in reverent fear. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Pray that these things would be truths that you would weave into the fabric of our soul and spirit and heart. God, it be more than just notes on the side of our Bibles but it would be things that we live out to think different and then to act different. Lord, thank you that this isn't something we have to figure out by ourselves to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, so to speak. And we just try harder. Lord, really, in many ways, it's just a surrender to you. To surrender fully to what your spirit wants to do in and through our lives. And that we'd crucify the flesh. We'd reckon the old person dead and pick up our cross and follow after you. Lord, thank you that we're your kids. May our conduct reflect that. In Jesus' name, amen.